Satan Great, a prima donna podcast. My name is Nat Grant. I'm a composer and sound artist from Melbourne, Australia. I acknowledge that this podcast was recorded and produced on stolen land, and I pay my respects to elders past and present. For more information about the podcast, you can visit primadonnapodcast.com. The third portrait in this series is of Suzanne Ingleton, actor, director, stand-up comedian, architect, and singer celebrant amongst other things. Suzanne is well known for her work with the Plant Factory, as well as in many of her own productions. She has much to say on being part of a collective and what would be called her ethos, and also on being one of the ones. There is a one trying for listeners. It's funny to think of me doing something that's not creative. I think. Um, I think if I could put my mind to that, I couldn't think of anything that didn't have some um, urgency about it or some uh, fiery point, something that was pushing me. um, What's the word? Electrifying me, you know, like turning me on or something. And for me, I suppose I've learned over the years that any act... Uh, that is an act without desire is an empty act, you know. So for me, the desire uh, probably is at the seat of everything, a desire to to bring about change, a desire to rescue, a desire to heal, a desire to be fabulous, a desire that's totally egocentric, uh, look what I can do, a desire to surprise myself, A desire to take to take on something that uh, it, it scares me, um, something I don't know anything about. But I have to always say, why, why has this dropped into my lap? Or what? Why am I to go through that door? What is? Why has that door appeared and I'm going to go through it? Most doors I go through. I always believe, you know, you. And, and there's an energetic um, connectivity, and I sort of believe, I suppose, that there's no such thing as a coincidence. There's always, for me, I believe in divine sequence. So you, uh, and I've understood this uh, through my healing work and my shamanic work, that you actually never go off your path. You're always on your path. It's just that it seems like shit at times, and you think I've left my path, but this is your path. And I think that. Sometimes my path is like a, looks like a, uh, the entrails of some disemboweled beast, you know. <laughs> but I know there were seminal moments that were moments where I could see myself teeter-tottering on a that one or that one and I went on that one and understood much later that uh, that that was the right choice and at other times I've teeter-tottered and gone back on the other one and and seen later oh well that's what I learned from not doing the right thing you know so and I try to encourage students in that to understand that concept that you're always on your path you just either 
you're going to start to learn something really difficult now and you're going to learn why you chose to do that and hopefully in that process you are going to um, grow stronger, heal, you know, in that shamanic way. Interesting. It's funny because when a lot of people talk to me about what I've done and it's all, oh, the pram factory comes up all the time and that's about it. And and in fact, the pram factory for me was the, the, the leaping off point. It was after the time at the pram factory that, apart from one special cell group in the pram factory that we created, it was after that that I actually became who I, that might be the wrong word, that I actually explored who I was, uh, about to become all the time, you know, as I ate up more and more of life and uh, challenges and things, um, being becoming a writer, writing my own shows. The seeds of which were planted at the pram, I remember when we did the show, the Hills Family Show, um, there's one thing about the pram factory style that, when I finally got in there, I came back from overseas and sort of easily stepped in because they were all my mates from uni who were running it, you know, and I'd sort of gone and left uh, and gone to England um, while they were just starting. It was really a funny time. Uh, it was interesting that I got back just in time to sort of slot myself in around 19, um, 1970, uh, around then. Um, but yeah, the seeds of the pram factory were people got in there and they did their shtick. They did their shtick, which was they had a thing, they had a they talent, had they had, had, a, had, a, had, a, had an a, instant uh, performance technique, and I had one too. Um, and that was all I knew was like uh, this crazy review style technique, and um, and I remember the Hills Family Show probably was the epitome of that for me in terms of the shows that I did at the Pram. And it, and it was in that show um, that Rob Meldrum was in the show too. But at that time, Rob was studying with uh, Rowena Balos, who'd come out to do the, the voice work of, of uh, well, Iris Warren, but Kristen Linklater was the teacher from Iris. It started with Iris Warren at Lambda in London, London Academy of Dramatic Art. And it was given to Kristen Linklater and I've actually subsequently worked with her in, in France. But, um, and then Rowena Bellos had it. So she came out here to teach and she was seminal to many, many people and many, many theatre companies. Uh, she was teaching Jenny Kemp and Rob went and Jenny Kemp at the time wasn't part of the Pram Factory, but Rob was and I remember uh, during the Hills Family Show where I was having a fabulous time and it was very funny and getting great reviews and this and that and I remember after one show Rob coming up to me and, that, and I didn't know Rob very well then, you know. I, uh, he said to me, um, he's quite serious, you know, and he said, uh, I think I was taking my wig off at the time. He said, he said, you know, there's, a, there's another way to do all of this. I remember just thinking, fuck you. What, 
I'm doing okay, thanks. You know, I'm starring. It's great. This is hysterically funny. And we're wondering, what, what do you mean? And he just, it was very brave of him to have done that. I mean, it was totally um, brave and generous for him to put him, to put, to, to say that to me because I was an egomaniac, you know. Anyway, so he said this to me and I got really insulted. And, um, and then he, after that show was over, he 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 connected again and he, and he put a sign up saying, does anyone want to come and learn the Rowena Bailos workshop? Because I'm doing it now and I'm prepared to teach people. Okay. And out of that, and we went down to the Tilly space, which was down in Faraday Street. We'd, the pram had sort of grabbed a few empty warehouse spaces around Carlton. Of course, there's none now, but anyway, there were then. And um, and he, he put a notice up. And... I went to to the workshop that he was teaching the voice work of Kristen Linklater, right? And um, f- she has a book called Freeing the Natural Voice. And if you, I've got a copy of it, which is like gold. If you can ever find it um, and you're a performance artist, you should get it. Um, and he was a great teacher. I mean, he, we all went there. I mean, there was Susie Potter. There was me. Kerry Dwyer came. She didn't stay long. She left. Um, I think Jane Clifton even stuck her head in the door and then she left. But there was Ros de Winter. And um, out of that... ...came the stasis group. And that was Ros, Robert and I. And we, uh, and we pulled Jenny Campion to help us in Pier Gint, which we did. That was our first show, which we did at St Mark's Hall. And that was in 1976, I think. Um, And then Jenny came into the group and did a lot of work with us too because she was also trained in the Baylos stuff. And um, she became the outside eye. She wasn't the director. We all had a horror of directors at the Pram Factory. It was was a very strange atmosphere there. (laughs) Well, mainly because there weren't any. I mean, uh, and because of that collective consciousness no one was allowed to be the leader or stand out you know it 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 was uh it was up to the individual to um bring their energy into um into the group and everyone was equal which was bullshit you know anyway so we started the group called Stasis. We started with Sylvia Plath's poetry. We started with a show which we called Stasis. And that name came from Stasis in Darkness, which is one of Sylvia, the beginning lines of one of Sylvia Plath's poems. So I'd been working with Sylvia Plath's poetry and it had just come to me and I was going through um, a really shitty time in my marriage. Um, I was very unhappy. I had two kids. Um, I felt like I was still a virgin, hadn't had an orgasm yet. Two kids on further down. I was like, "What the fuck, you know?" So, it, it, but other things in the marriage were no good. It was just, it was just the most unfortunate time for me. Double stress because none of the others had kids, and none of them could even imagine what I was going through. And years, years later, when Ros had a child, and when Jenny had a child, and um, Rob didn't, of course, but. Um, they at various times came to apologise to me for being so ignorant of that, of that, uh, of the difference between our lives. Um, when we would get to work, I would get to work having done God knows what 
I got kids to crash and, you know, packed off a husband. And during that time with Stasis, I actually went through the marriage breakup. Um, but apart from all that, there was like two lives that I lived all my life. was the life of a mother and a homemaker and an artist. And the artist most often got sacrificed for the children and the home and then at times the children got sacrificed to the job the money job aspect of the art although I must admit that I have very very ever really done a job just that I didn't want to do because for the money um, and I've I think some very difficult decisions can be made can come up for an artist when they know that, you know, the job that they, the, the work they want to do is not going to make as much money as that shitty job that, you know, where you're going to be doing some shitty work on TV and you're fucking going to hate it, you know, but you'll get paid and money. And there's a very interesting story. When we were stasis and we were working on the Sylvia Plath show, we worked in that tiny little church building on the corner of Gatehouse Street and something, there's a there's a little sort of funny little church hall there and we were working in there. That was uh, Roz and Jenny, uh, Roz and um, Rob and I, the, just the three of us. We worked, we created a show about Sylvia Plath um, which was, which we toured around to, to various places. We did it at the Ewing Gallery once, um, and that was to try to support us and make money to do something else. But while we were rehearsing that show in that tiny little theatre space, Roz hadn't been um, sharing with us what was happening to her. But what happened one day was um, this sort of chauffeur person knocked on the door of the building and delivered to Roz this huge bunch of flowers like um and we rob and i were like what's that and Roz is sort of going oh oh no you know and we said what what's going on she said oh they're from hector crawford what what do you mean they're from hector crawford you know what why is she giving you flashes oh look he wants me to um they want me to do the role in this show that they're doing and i just i just don't want to do it you know i'm um what show? What show? I don't know. It's called the something. I, they want me to play the mother, the Sullivans. They wanted her to play the mother in the Sullivans. Now, Rob and I were like so – well, we were gobsmacked, but we were also we, – we didn't get it. We didn't understand that you could turn that down to do our little Sylvia Plath show, our – um, how can I explain it? But you see, there was Ros de Winter who'd acted, who'd come from London, performed there. She was in one of the original episodes of Doctor Who, um, who had done theatre and knew that there's got to be more. 
she was the catalyst for us, you see. She transformed us from performers into actors. Um, with her intensity and her uh, her straight through line all the time. She had a she had a line that she you you could do something and she'd say, Can we just do that again? And it was like, oh, fuck, we've got it, haven't we? Isn't that it? You know, it's like Jesus Ross. No, she she would just push us one more time over the cliff. Um, the way that it went was that we all got together with Rob's workshop. And then we did. We said, well, look, this is pretty interesting. Let's do a show. <laughs> Basically, we did a show about doing voice exercises. <laughs> and we did it in the back there of the prayer factory. But then Roz said, no, let's start to work with our dreams. And so we all brought in a dream. And then we, then we started to create a theatrical um, inter- uh, performance of that dream and they were really weird fantastically weird and we were we were mad I, mean, I don't know we, people came to see the show and people <laughs> said I don't know what they got from stasis I have got no idea but but we we lay on the floor and began the show doing doing body exercises and making sounds and then we all went into a dream and then we all got up and then Rob and I then we worked with a bit of Sylvia Plath poetry that was when we started to touch and she was she got worked into stasis into that show so Susie Potter me Rob uh, uh, Yvonne Marini was in it and she became a sort of outside eye we called them the outside eye not the director because they really weren't the director because we were all the director you know so anyways <laughs> But that show, after that, then we did the Sylvia Plath show and then we did Pigint. And when we did Pigint, it it was, um, we, I, I don't know how it happened, but we all discovered a way of working and learning learning lines where we would lie on the floor with your head in someone someone's hands and they'd and we were imaging the lines we were feeding the lines to the actor so as you did this process of feeding the lines and the actor imaging uh an image for each word and the sound in the mouth and as you did that of course you two had your own images so what what happened was when we did Pigint, we couldn't do the whole play. We did the, we called it the Young Pigint. Was the whole first half of the play where he leaves his mother, she dies, and he leaves and he goes off into the world and does all that stuff as a as a troll. He doesn't realise he's become um, a troll. Uh, and we did that, and we just swapped all the roles around. So we just said, well, act one, scene one, I'll, I'll be pair. And we drew straws. We didn't say who was going to do it. We picked out stuff out of a hat. We just left it to the universe to tell us who we were going to be. So every scene, and we wore a, a, a little brown waistcoat if you were Pear Gint, and if you were also, you had a, a shawl. If you were Ingrid, you had a sort of white cloth around your head. You know, we just, and we just wore basic blacks, and we decided when we started to work we knew we had to get out of the pram factory we had to get out of that building we had to get away we stopped going to committee meetings and things and they really they hated us they got so pissed off with us because we wanted to 
we wanted to do something more, you know, we wanted to go deeper, we wanted to be free enough to see what else there was. So we found St Mark's Hall, Father Michael, he was lovely, he gave us the hall, we rehearsed in the hall, then we rehearsed upstairs where there was a yoga space later and then we... Um, and we kept rehearsing there when we did Anthony and Cleopatra as well. And we performed Pier Gint in that hall. Uh, I remember going down to the hospital and getting all the sheets that they didn't want and hanging them all around the walls. And and I had this vision of, uh, of these huge cable reels, these great big wooden cable reels. I'd seen them on a truck and I thought, oh, shit, aren't they great? So we got hold of a big one, a middle one and a little one, and they became our set. And in the Hall of the Troll King, uh, Roz sat on top of this huge cable reel as the as the Dover King, the the father troll king. You know, he, she sat there in this. <laughs> she was so fantastic, and I was pegged into that episode, in that scene. And I remember taking the next size cable reel and I rode it down the middle of St Mark's Hall. Um, couldn't do that now, um, and then hung onto it and then rolled around inside it, making sure my hands didn't get rolled over as we went around, you know. And it was amazing. And then Neil Giles came in at, the, at halfway through, sort of said he'd play drums for us. So, And he did. He came in and he, and he, and he played drums. Um, and we didn't quite know what to do with Neil because we were very insular at that point of time, you know. And so Jenny came and watched it a bit um, and did some floor work with us when we were working at St Mark's but she wasn't in it but she again was gave us an outside eye to it and then on uh, I remember we'd start behind the curtain and <laughs> Roz the very opening night I remember Roz sort of she said now you know we, we used to gather because we were in deep meditation with each other you know I mean it was quite an extraordinary experience um, and I remember her saying, we all got together and we all had it. And then she put her arm up. She said, to the death. She goes, <laughs> and we all we said, to the death, you know. And then, and then we started and then, and then we just sort of, we kept to the roles that we had div- divvied up, you know. But we knew, th- we knew everyone else's lines and we trimmed it a little bit to it. So it and it was amazing. I mean, it was, and I don't know how many people saw it, but I, every now and then I'll run into someone who says, I saw Pierkind. And you go, Oh my God. And they say, It was amazing. You know, and we had one woman who came up to us one night and she said, She was American. She said, I've seen every piece of theater in New York and I've never seen anything like that. So we, we were, that was all we needed, you know. We didn't, it, it was almost like a secret society stasis. And then we decided we'd do Shakespeare. And then, I mean, we'd done Ibsen, so now we'll do Shakespeare. We'll do Antony and Cleopatra, we decided. And then that was like uh, the minute we said to the collective, we want to do uh, Shakespeare, um, we had to go to the collective to to uh, you went to the collective with an idea for a show, and then the committee would go. The planning committee would then go, yeah, all right, well we can fit in here. We'll do it in the back theatre. We'll be fine. We'll do it in the back theatre, and then we had Jenny on board. So there was Jenny, Rob, me, and Roz, and everyone else who had been in the original stasis, like Yvonne and Susie Potter, dropped out, and and we found our our centre. 
and Jenny didn't want to act. She really didn't want to act because she really was more of a director. Um, but then again, I was a director too, and I knew that I was. I knew that I kept having these visions of scenes unfolding. I could, because trained as an architect, I have a very high visual sense, you know. And I've always designed all my own posters. I've designed all my own sets. So I designed this, the poster for Pierre Gint. I designed the poster, the program poster for Anthony and Cleopatra as well. But, um, so again with Anthony and Cleopatra, we had to strip it back to the bare essentials that, uh, so, you know, one scene we were with the four soldiers and when we could hear Anthony's ghosts coming in and then I was Cleopatra, um, Rob would be Anthony, Ros would be somebody else, then I loved playing Anthony. I loved doing Anthony. That really just... I felt so much power doing Anthony and Rob playing Cleopatra, you know, and we just put on, I made, I did all the costumes, I made all these robes, so Cleopatra had an emerald green robe, um, Anthony had a red robe, we just swapped around and then we had Octavia, who was Anthony's wife, where he gets married and goes back to Rome and, and she gets the messenger in who tells her that Anthony's got married and she sort of wants to kill the messenger. Um, Octavia was a dummy and the dummy was operated upstairs in the little lighting box at the back theatre. Um, you know, it was, it was, oh, that's right, and we had Eric Engelbogen. Now, again, he was going to do music, and honestly, this poor man, he must have had the most worst time because we never listened to him, we never wanted him there, and yet somehow we, we let him come in to do this, and he would be hitting things and... <laughs> Like hitting, you know, here's a drum kit, but he'd be doing, had all these nuts and bolts and things around and sit on the floor and it was like, we just wanted him to go away. It was just terrible. Poor man. It was just terrible. I'll never forget him. Oh, God. So we just sort of ignored Eric. And so we had scrolls. And, I mean, this last, um, this this production of Anthony and Cleopatra that we did, um, there were four actors, so we each had um, a, a, a role. I mean, in the olden days, the, the part you had was on a roll, uh, a rolled-up piece of paper that had what part you had. That's why the, ro the word role is from oh. that, okay? What oh. role have you got? Well, I've got this role, you know, oh. and unroll it. So we had that, and we knew which, if you were one A, B, C, or D, so D had was Anthony in that scene, Cleopatra in that scene, a soldier, um, you know, da da da, da and that's how it all panned out. Octavius Caesar, do 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 do, um, and we did that. And then on the last, the last uh, few performances, I remember we all stood there one night to the death, you know, <laughs> one night, and we just said, um, "Fuck it, pick out of a hat." which role you've got. So we just took them out of the hat. So if you'd been doing D, you suddenly got to do A. So that, we knew the whole play. The method that we were working with was shamanic. Now we didn't know that, there wasn't a name for it. It was, uh, this is um, 1978, 77. I mean, this is, uh, we were doing stuff that we didn't have a word for it. We were just um, acting, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs>
you know. I remember one night when we were rehearsing upstairs, Anthony and Cleopatra, we were rehearsing upstairs in St Mark's Hall and Roz was playing Octavius Caesar. Now the thing about Octavius Caesar comes up against Mark Antony and Octavius Caesar is young and uh, v- vicious youth and Antony is old and gnarled and scarred uh, warrior and in one of Shakespeare's uh, one of the scenes the soothsayer comes to Antony and he says um, to Antony your spirit near him goes under so when you are with him your spirit dies you know you don't you can't fight him because there's something in you that will go under to this you know guy so Ros is playing Octavia since she's she's in the hall and there's one scene where she faces up to Anthony and she was she was a slight woman uh, but we were shape-shifting and all of, and I know that I was watching with Jenny because Rob was playing Anthony and Ros walked down the hall and I remember her arms going up sort of like in this strange laconic gesture taunting him with the words you know and he Rob was like fuming you know down the other end of the hall just and we they were yards apart and Ros just slowly crossed the floor towards him like a serpent like a snake you know and and we just sat there with you know, it was, it was, uh, it's in my brain. I'll never lose that picture or that feeling of what was happening there. And I think, I think uh, it's funny because I remember Rob coming back with a story years and years and years later where um, Stephen, who, Stephen, um, who was teaching voice at the VCA for a long time. Anyway, he'd been to see a production of Anthony and Cleopatra in Canberra and Rob was there but he didn't know him. Anyway, he came back out and he said to someone, um, oh, yes, well, you know, that was all very good, but I tell you what, there was nothing like this production I saw of this play in the back theatre at the Pram Factory. You know, and Rob was like, yes. <laughs> we, we took a workshop out of Anthony and Cleopatra. We took a workshop and we took it around school so we could get the money together so we could do the play in the back theatre. We, be, we tried to become self-sufficient because we were every minute of the way we were fighting the APG Collective who said we shouldn't be doing Shakespeare. And that was the Pram Factory? That was the Pram Factory Collective, yeah. And, and there was Jack Hibbard translating Baudelaire and doing all his stuff, but we weren't allowed to do Shakespeare. They, we were, they were so fucked, you know, honestly, in their brains. They just didn't. And then at the end of that year, of course, Suzanne Spunner, who was writing for the Melbourne Times... She gave us the year's award for the best theatre produced all year and she gave it to Stasis. And then the pram fracture like, oh, good. Oh, well, that's good. (laughs) So we had, for me, that was more or less the end. At at the end of that, I did two shows, A Light Shining in Buckinghamshire, which we did at the pram factory and um, Carol Churchill play, lovely play about the diggers and the revelers, ranters and the digglers, diggers at the, in London, you know, English play. And then we did um, uh, Traitors by Stephen Saw, which Kerry and Kerry directed with Nano Nagel. She directed it as well. Uh, and then I, then I left. 
I went overseas and um, got went to London, got pregnant with Rick and came back with the kids pregnant. And while I was pregnant, uh, I'd rung up Rod Quantock and said, look, you know, I really want to do a show. I don't think I'm going to be pregnant again. But I really want to do a show being pregnant, you know. What am, you know, and it was like... And I said, oh, I'm too tired. I'm not going to do it. And he rang me back. He said, come on. He said, look, we've got, a, we've got a gap. You can do it. What do you, you know? And I said, oh, God, what am I going to do? So two in the morning up I get, wake up, and I'm channeling this idea of a pregnant man. And so that was the birth of Bill, Bill Rawlings, the pregnant man. And he was sort of based on my brother. I don't think my brother ever recognized himself. Probably just as well. Um and a pregnant man, an ochre male. And the journey into that was, uh, again, a shamanic journey, a shape-shifting journey to be... I was eight months pregnant when I did the show at the Comedy Cafe. And that was 1981 I did that. And Bill then subsequently uh, just kept coming back into my work. So, I mean, he's been in so many shows and stand-up and... Strip Jack Naked was the show that came in 1985, uh, which was really built around Bill and Gemma. And Gemma had appeared after, when I had the babe, when I had Roxy, um, I came back and did a show called Mother's Courage, which was again at the Comedy Cafe, and it was all about Bill having had the baby. I was Bill again. One incredible night. Oh, God, the things that happened. One incredible night upstairs. It was upstairs at the comedy cafe, so there was. they would all eat a meal, a terrible meal. They would all eat a meal. They weren't chefs, any of those people, Rod and Mary and all of them. There was a table full of people who didn't stop talking the whole way through. So I'm doing the show and people are saying, shut up, you know, like this fucking table full of people with one main guy up at the end you know anyway I, I took them to task you know because by this stage nothing nothing was going to phase I mean you know stand up comedy is such a rort but you just got to be I'll talk about that in a minute yeah. but this particular night this this table full of people rude assholes and um, I remember saying I, I knew his name was Guy all right and suddenly something flashed through my mind that he was a gynecologist. I suddenly knew what was happening here. Anyway, he might not have been, but it worked. Guy the gynecologist. <laughs> so then I started, you know, testing him. And, and he, he said, he threatened me and he said, come down outside and we'll sort this out. He thought I was a man. This happened a lot. Yep. And, I, and I said, oh. This would be unbelievable if I said any time, any time, guy, you know, we'll get up, we'll sort it out now. Come on, get up off the table. You know. Anyway, so in the end, built, <laughs> we couldn't, I just said, I took some, I took a bucket, a potty or something. I said, okay, everyone, I said, what is it, guy? You want your money back? I handed it around the whole room, gathered money for everyone to get him out of the building and I dumped it on the table in front of him and I said, now clear out. And they all got up and they went down the stairs and as they went down the stairs, the fuse boxes at the door and they turned the lights off. Oh, that was so brave and wonderful. Anyway, that was just 
Um, but uh, at the moment, there was a moment where this man was going to come out and punch me in, in Brunswick Street. That <laughs> would have been fantastic. You know? I mean, that would have been, anyway, many, many times I got confused. I was, I did strip jack naked up at the, up at the club in Sydney. <laughs> And Bill would arrive, and there was a, a, a table full of lesbians, right? Um, all sitting there, and, I, and Bill would go up to a table full of women. They didn't have to be lesbians, just women. And he'd say, G'day, girls, what are you doing here all alone? And they'd either react to that, and all the lesbians all reacted and told me to fuck off, fuck off, you to, you know, but yeah. all this like yeah. next minute, I'm up on the stage and I'm Sue Ingleton, and they're <laughs> like, oh my God, you know, so. There was a lot of payback in that, I must admit. After the pram, I left Melbourne. I moved up to northern New South Wales with Rick and I'd had Roxy and Roxy was a home birth baby and had Roxy and, and then we, I sold up my house and we moved up there. And that's where... Um, I began to, uh, uh, I did the show being pregnant and that stuff and did Le Joke uh, and did and Gemma and that was all created here and then Gemma arrived when I was breastfeeding Roxanne and that was in the year, still 1981. So Bill had had the baby but then Gemma, we did a show, I did a show with Ursula Harrison from, from the pram. And Ursula just had a baby too. She'd had Mina and I'd had Roxy. So we were, we thought, oh, let's do a show. We called it the Blood and Milk Show. Can you imagine what it was about? <laughs> so we got up there and Gemma, and we were separate but sort of together. Uh, but Gemma was, um, I was breastfeeding and I, I was 38 or, yeah, I must have been 38 at that point. But I was tired, I was exhausted, you know. So I did a show. I created this character called Gemma, Gemini Marina Hatchback, GMH all my life. Um, so I've been to the guru to get a new name. So her name was Gemini Marina Hatchback. You know. So she she spoke like that because she was so, so I was on, um, uh, I don't know, I was on Serapex and, um, and then she would just go into, she would name every drug that was ever invented. She was on it, you know. And then, but she was also, very confused. I mean, she would say, I went to a meeting in Western Mining and I threw, she threw tampons at Ivy Parbo. She had, I made it, I was a shareholder. Sorry, right, I am a shareholder. And then she would go, you know, so like she was so, she was like one foot as a, as a, um, one foot as a hippie type of woman and the other foot is in the, in the banking sector, you know. I mean, she was totally confused. And so, but she was the most perfect, um, she she said she was she like pine gap was happening so she was going to you know she pulled all everything was come at the time was there so she said you know i went to pine gap and i was arrested for throwing what was it uh, i was arrested for throwing my underpants over a security officer and she said and they got me down to the alice springs police station and i substituted tampons for my fingers i don't think they'd ever seen a tampon let alone a used one you know so she just had this insane thing she got femme fresh and she sprayed the front row of the audience <laughs> with femme she said it's all right women put this up their cunts it's not going to hurt you, you know. men going ah! <laughs> she would take a modest belt out of her 
little box and she'd say, she'd hold it up and she'd say, I lost the only two pubic hairs I had in one of these. And then she'd get tampons and she says, toxic shock pellets. And she'd fling them out to the audience, like a, she'd fling them out to the audience. Celebrancy was just something I did on the side. Yeah. Mind you, I did learn a lot. It put me back in contact with my writing and also with um, my love of literature and of poetry. And it extended um, it extended me into um, deeper realms of poetry because celebrancy is all about poetry, quite frankly. And it's all about healing and it's all about... Um, un- a lot of the time, the celebrants is interesting because a lot of the time I would find myself with two people who really sometimes didn't know why they why they wanted to get married, and that would be a question I would always ask them pretty up close, you know. So why are you going to get married? And they'd both stare at each other, and she would usually say something, and he would go, "Yeah, you know." Or <laughs> usually the the guys were so reticent to actually have anything to do with the ceremony. So many, I would say 80% of the guys were so not interested in the ceremony because they sort of, she was obviously one, she had a dream. It seems to be a dream for women. The marriage is a, is a dream for women. It's a thing that connects them to their mothers, either for good or for bad. Um, and the men go along with it just to keep the waters smooth. Um, and maybe um, the man has a mother who wants to be a part of it too. But essentially, it's a female dream, which is so insane because it's a male construct in a way. The, the marriage that we have this day now is a, a construct of male patriarchal uh, property rights. And that's all that that marriage contract is. Um, and finally, we got rid of John Howard's unbelievable marriage is a union between a man and a woman you know and it was that Mm. used to just drive us all insane and most of my clients didn't want it said but we had to say it and then they would have me do a a thing at the end of it saying you know they don't believe in that which was you know great but marriage you know marriage the sacred marriage the highest gamut is what I was always interested in which is the which is the coming together the male and the female and the Indian ceremonies of you are his god and he is your goddess or you you know blah 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 um, those equivocations of the balance of yin and yang and marriage you know being a hundred percent and a hundred percent not fifty percent and fifty percent because that concept of 50 percent 50 50 is really bad yeah really bad yeah you either give it a hundred percent or you give it nothing you know anyway so I learned a lot through through ceremony through poetry um and I went back into reconnecting with poetry which I'd which at school and at uni I was really into poetry and I was very romantic and really got into John Donne and got into Vijapati who was an Indian poet however I'd never come across Rumi and I'd had never come across Rabindranath Tagore and all these amazing beautiful concepts that that you could write and a lot of the people in the celebrancy I would say well what about poetry and they go oh no no I did poetry in school I fucking hated it you know <laughs> oh no that's not poetry let me read you something you know and then they'd go oh is that poetry oh, oh that's pretty cool you yeah. know and, oh. <laughs> so so there was a lot the, it was a time in my life where a lot a lot of, um, I think actually, as I think about it now, it was like a lot of the time I knew I had, 
um, I had a pathway there that was a pathway that uh, opened me deeper into the healing work that I do now. Um, and especially, I do funerals now. I, don't, I stopped doing marriages uh, a couple of years ago because I'd sort of had it up to pussies by with marriages. And I committed myself more to rituals and um, funerals. And then the shamanic healing that I'm trained in now is... Um, was obviously at the at the bottom of all of that, you know. It, it's it was like I was feeding an underground river, of of a of something I was being drawn to, more and more. And when I work with Kerry Dwyer on my theatre, which we'll get to in a minute, um, the seeds of shamanism w- was in our work, and we really didn't know that. So I'll come back to the theatre um, after the stand-up comedy uh, things and all that travel overseas and um, awards here and there and going to Montreal and doing Strip Jack Naked in Montreal and getting um, getting my foot in the door. Um, it was it, it never really, really took off because I always chose the family first. I always chose my children and I always chose... Um, the life that I was creating with Rick Ludbrook that we went up to the North Coast and built this house up in the North Coast. So somehow it, 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 I could say it was a sacrifice. But on the other hand, um, it, wa- it, wasn't, it, it wasn't a sacrifice. It was an amazing way to sort of keep doing everything, I suppose. Um, and after around 88, um, 87... I'd read a book by Dale Spender called Women of Ideas and What Men Have Done to Them. It's a fantastic book, huge, thick tome. And in it, she just took the lives of, I don't know, 50 women. I don't know. She just, her research is amazing. She's one of our great feminist authors. Um, And out of that, I got this idea to do a show about these lost women in history. Um, and And I did, and I created, and I researched and researched and ended up with probably about, um, I think there were seven seven women and the show was too long. God, I had to get rid of Sarah Grimke, who was the most extraordinary story. An American suff- uh, woman who was um, a suffragette and gave it all up because her brother-in-law told her she didn't sound very good when she spoke. Anyway. Oh, wow. Uh, and she gave it up to look after her sister Angelina's children. And her brother, her sister was married to the great slave reformer. So she, an extraordinary woman. And at one point I ordered... I ordered from the local library a copy of her book on emancipation of women. I'm sitting up there in the, up in the jungle of Taylor's Arm and I go into the local library in Nambucca and they've got this thing wrapped up in plastic, you know, and I get this book and I open it up and I had to sign something for it, you know, but this is Nambucca Library and I go and I get this book and it was like, this was her book. This was an original fucking copy of this book that she wrote. The pages were, I mean, it was like all of a sudden I was holding this woman in my hands, you know, over. She was 18, 1848 time, you know. Anyway, so near Mrs. Um, I got a grant from the Australia Council to write this show and I thought it was about uh, mothers and daughters. And I must say at this point of time that most of the theatre I've ever written has always been about the mother-daughter Diaspora, you know the di- what is it called? Not diaspora, dichotomy. You know the the anyway that thing that mothers and daughters have, and always I think my shows were always really dedicated to my mother, 
even though she never really understood any of them. Um, she, <laughs> she would she would sit through me in a show, and at the end, it was like, "What did you think of the show?" And she'd say, "Oh, your legs looked lovely." <laughs> that was it. <laughs> That was that was what she got. So, my darling mother, God, what a treasure. Anyway, um, so near misses uh, went on at um, the Universal. No, it went. It opened because I was living up in New South Wales, and most of my theatre was being done in Sydney. So it went on at the Performance Space in Sydney, and Kerry was my director. And Kerry came up to Taylor's arm, but a week before she was due to come up, or three days before she was due to come up. <laughs> I thought I had the show all worked out. I was going to have all these wigs and things on stands and I was going to become one woman and then another woman. And I'd chosen the women that I wanted to do. And they were all amazing women. There was Afra Ben. There was, these are women people hadn't heard of in 1988. Afra Ben, Charlotte Perkins Gilman, Sojourner Truth. Um, um, see, I can't even remember them. Um, oh, come on. I can't even think. Oh, yeah, Margaret Sanger, her birth control. You know, they all... They all represented eras and times and milestones in, in our history um, and all of them unrecognised and all of them buried in time. And at the time I had, um, I had this character, Edith. Edith Wise had come to me in, in 1988. She arrived as a, when I was doing a show at uh, the Universal Theatre down here called um, Pennies Before the Holidays by um, a playwright, Lisa, Lisa Benyon, I think is her name. I think she's still there. I don't know. Anyway, so Flash Rat was the wonderful, amazing, beautiful, now dead Kerry Eccles, who was a lifelong friend and, and my, or I used to call her my beloved critic. Um, <laughs> she always told me I should never get up and sing. I always threatened I'd sing at a funeral so she couldn't die, see, so that was one of, one of our arrangements. Anyway, um, in that show I was playing an old lady called Daisy and, uh, and at her... An interview on ABC Radio, we were publicising the show, Ros Horan directed it, and I'm in there doing this interview with John Yost, who was working at the ABC at the time, and one of my oldest friends as well. And all of a sudden, this this woman came into me, and she started to talk, and it wasn't the character Daisy, it was so not the character Daisy. Um, and this woman, she started to talk like this, and, and I was like, who the hell? Who is this person? And we got out of it and Ros Horan turned around and she said, who was that? And I said, I've got no idea. Anyway, after that play I went home and I was asked to do a launch of a, of a, a women's um, collective up in Nambakaran. And all of a sudden I sat down one night, as is the way, and I just this woman just told me her life. She came from Warhope, she was this, she was that. And there was, and her name was Edith Wiseman, but she dropped the man bit when, her, when she got rid of two men with one stroke. Her husband died. <laughs> I mean, look. And so she she was born in 1988 at the age of 88. And she stayed 88 right through into about 2007. And then in the end, I just stopped saying she was 88 because it was... Well, because she's still here. She's Because really well. we had all these jokes about her. The jokes circled around being born in 1900. So 1988... She was 88, but then, of course, by the 2004 or 10 or whatever it was, she couldn't, she couldn't be 110 <laughs> Anyway, but the point of me telling you about Edith now is that um, in Near Misses, with all these women, what suddenly happened um, when Kerry came up to our, our property up in the Nambucca, 
I had previously put my back out and I could not walk. Now, this is something that's always plagued me. It's a really bad lower back. Um, and so I could crawl. No one could touch me. And we found she came there for two days. So I had to lie in bed. And we rehearsed with me lying in bed. I mean, it was one of those funny... I know how these things happen. They happen from an emotional click moment. And I remember I turned around in the kitchen to admonish one of the kids. But I was really angry with Rick um, and myself. And my back went out. Mm. And that was the end of me. So for three days, we worked in bed. Kerry sat on the bed and wrote as I spoke. And we went through all the women, but we went... We, we got all the women and we went through their chakras. So I was doing artwork on their chakras and and starting to rewrite all the scripts that I'd written, some of which were completely wrong. The script for Afra Ben I'd written, she, she stood and she looked at me. You see, here's the other trick. These women were real. They were alive people. They were the container of souls. They existed. So their energy is there as a real energy out there in the etheric, still there. So you can tap in, and that's when I first began to channel in to other energies outside. So back in 1988, uh, the show was going on in 1989, so we were rehearsing in 89. It started in um, uh, end of March, it started at the performance space. So working with Kerry on that, and we'd worked together a lot before, but this specifically, we'd done, we'd done a really good show at the Belvoir Street called Horn a Madhouse, where it was Frank Arama's scripts, and it was a fantastic show. Um, four women, four women directors uh, was really good. But this show was, see, Kerry's also very psychic and has, we both connected, both in different ways, though. Um, and so... The techniques that we were using were techniques of shamanism, although we didn't call it that. I don't, I don't know. We didn't call it anything. Um, so lying in bed with me doing all of this, Afra Ben's script had to be thrown away. Um, she looked at me because the, the women would appear to me and she looked at me and she turned away from me and she didn't want to say anything that I'd written for her. Um, and then again, sort of, you know... 5am in the morning I woke up and I rewrote her script and I found myself writing her poetry. I was writing poetry in the style of Afra Ben. I mean, I was like, and in the end when I look at the script now, I can't remember what she wrote and what I wrote, but mm. she was writing through me, you know. So this happens a lot. This is how I write plays. The people just talk to me or I write books. They just... I've just got this book now that's being published next year which is called An Imagined Biography because these two women that I've discovered have... There's not a letter from them, nothing, nothing, you know, just a couple of newspaper articles about them and stuff. But, However, I've written all these scripts about them, they're talking. So sometimes it's really great to have this skill, but sometimes it, when you're sitting with someone you don't know and you suddenly get all this information and you just don't want to know about it, you know, it's really hard. So Nemes has opened after this extraordinary moment when we both landed down at Sydney, went into the performance space and the energy in that space was black and heavy and they were kept being robbed and when Kerry and I went into the space we sat in the middle of the floor and we did this huge meditation in there and she went down into, we both ended up in the centre of the earth, I ended up on a rock with an Aboriginal man who was holding a spear and he said to me, um, 
he said to me, you can't come here, there's too much pain here. And I said to him, how much pain? He said, 200 years of pain here. And I said to him, well, I am carrying 2,000 years of women's pain. Give me your pain, I will take it too. And he handed me this spear and he called me the pain bearer. And that's that's what that show was all about, really. Sorry, I'm getting a bit upset because it was so amazing. Carrie went down in her meditation to this centre, Mother Earth, who was, she was birthing all these black children. And it was, I mean, it was just, anyway, we cleared the space in there and it was amazing. The show was amazing. Um, the, it was sold out. There were people hanging from the rafters. And the, the last night of the show, Carrie had gone to, to um, she was directing something in Perth and I, paid for her to come back to be there on the last night of the show so she could share that amazing sort of moment. And the next morning, we Sunday morning, we all woke up to find that the Chinese had murdered all their children in Tiananmen Square at the very time that we were It was just heartbreaking, you know. So that show went down to the Universal Theatre and again was a huge success and stuff. But then it never... I did a bit of it over in North America and I wanted to take it to New Zealand where I'd taken all my other shows, but it just didn't happen and then all of a sudden I met Marguerite Pepper and she was a producer and she took it to the Adelaide Festival in 1990 I think 1989 90 yeah 1990 and then it went up to um, Alice Springs for a show so it did have a life Um, it was something that um, knocked people out I mean 1989 90 yeah 30, 30 years ago and I feel in a way that no matter what we did, what women did, it's still gone. It's gone. That show's gone. And there's no history of it. There's no uh, reference point for it. All of that incredible work and all of that knowledge and all of that revelation and everything that was in the show that was my experience of women doing things you know and and um i'm listening on the radio to someone talking about um the life of uh, muriel matters who was a fantastic australian woman who went across to england to scream at the english parliament to give women the vote 1919 you know in the early years when we already had the vote And it's like, yeah, 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 you know, I could, I could scream the names and then there's someone publishing a book about something. Now I'm publishing a book about two women no one's ever heard of who did the most extraordinary things. Um, And it's like almost this, this, this feminism, got to be really careful. Feminism. Every woman is a feminist because she carries in her the death of so many women, the lives of so many, the memories of so many women, and she's the only one who's got them because she's a woman, and the experience of hundreds of years of oppression of women under the patriarchy on this planet. She carries with her the pain of what has been done to the planet. She carries with her the pain of the ecology, which is feminine, of Mother Nature who has been raped and extorted upon. She carries that pain. We even And to even say, oh, I'm not a feminist, that means you are not a woman. And feminism has become as 
as the patriarchy always manages to do, degraded, denigrated, this shitty word, these shitty women. You want to, feminism has become the word like suffragette. It's ugly. These women are ugly. These women are, you know, angry. These women are nasty. They don't like men, uh, blah, blah, blah. I mean, I could just go on about, I did this and I did that, uh, blah, blah, de blah. Um, I wrote this play, I wrote that play, it got produced, it didn't get produced, I did this, I did that. And the experiences of all of that are repetitious in a way. I almost don't know why I'm doing this because I'm, I don't want to just sound like this complaining person. I suppose what I... Look, I read this... I read this fantastic thing. There's a woman called Irma Bombrick, and she's gone now. She's passed away, but she was an American writer, hysterically funny writer. And I remember a long time ago reading her stuff somewhere. A really, really funny writer, and I got this book out of the local um, roadside library, you know, to read. Uh, and the book was called When You Look Like Your Passport Photo, It's Time to Go Home, <laughs> which is just fantastic. But she wrote this, she's, you can go online and you can just uh, put Irma Bombrek, B-O-M-B-R-E-C-H, Irma or Irma, um, and all her sayings are there, you know, her quotes, they're fantastic. But there's one quote that really hit me, and the, the quote is this, that when I, when I arrive at the pearly gates, I want to be completely empty, and I want to be able to say... To God, I have used everything you gave me. Thank you for listening to the Prima Donna podcast. For more information and to hear more episodes, please visit primadonnapodcast.com.